Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Dave Pellegrin, and our topic is Men in Grief. Dave Pellegrin is a publishing executive residing in Hawaii. Following the 1991 death of his son, George, in a motorcycle accident, he became involved with the Compassionate Friends. He later served on the National Board of the Compassionate Friends for six years, three of those years as its president. Currently, he is president of the Board of Trustees of TCF Foundation. Dave was a keynote speaker at the Compassionate Friends National Conference in Arlington on Grief and Judgment, A Father's Story. He lives in Honolulu with his wife, Kathleen. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Gloria. Hi, Dave. How's Honolulu? Well, it's fine. I, first, I want to apologize if I sound a little bit hoarse. The uh, the temperatures out here have dipped into the low 70s, and we're all struggling with it. <laughs> so I've got, a, I've got a small head cold, but, uh, you know, nothing serious. You sound well, great. I can't even tell. You're coming through very loud and clear. Oh, Absolutely. Good. And... Uh, so we're going to talk about men and grief, Dave, today, and I know that you have presented at the National Conference on that, right? Yes, uh-huh. And so we want to uh, get into that because we know men do have a lot of different issues about grief than women, I think. Do you think that's the case? Well, I think so, uh, and uh, it, it, it took me a while before I realized that. But uh... Yeah. Well, could you tell us a little bit about something about your son that was killed and uh, sure. what it was? And... Yeah. It, well, it... Uh... You know, my story goes back a little more than 15 years uh, to November 1991. And uh, it was actually a good time for my two sons. It was certainly better than a year earlier when their mother and I had ended our marriage. But now November, George was in great spirits. He'd just gotten accepted uh, into the college of his choice, which was uh, the University of Oregon. And he planned on starting there in January. And his younger brother, Adam, had discovered what became the love of his life, which was football. And then everything changed, and some t- it was some time, and uh, it was still dark. The early morning hours of Sunday, November 24th, and my phone rang. It was a call from the Queens Medical Center here in Honolulu, uh, and they wanted to know if if uh, George Pellegrin was my son, and if so, could I please come down to the emergency room? He was in a traffic accident, and his condition was grave. And I remember I was met by a female chaplain at the emergency room entrance, and she had a very soothing manner. And uh, she took me into into a small waiting room where I waited to see a doctor. And to this day, I'm dumbfounded that even with a chaplain on the scene, my mind still managed to block out any thought that uh, my handsome, laid-back, rascal son could possibly, you know, had possibly died. Well, anyway, the doctor told me when I did see him that he died on the scene. Uh, it was in a motorcycle accident. Uh, he was out with a group of friends, and he got on a, a friend's motorcycle and uh, had an accident, lost control of it about a mile from from where he started out. And as I say, then everything changes from that point. Now he wasn't. It wasn't his motorcycle. He wasn't a motorcycle. Yeah, I don't. Or... I don't know if he'd ever ridden one before in his life. Oh uh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. No other, no other cars or people were involved. He just lost control of it on a curve. Uh huh. Wow. Yeah. Um, how about your other son? How has he dealt with all this? 
well, that about was, uh, men in grief too, because it's siblings in grief. And yeah. Men, well, I was seeing, I was telling day before the show started. Also, the idea of boys grieving, and how is that different than girls? And I'm sure that boys grieve similar to men in many ways. That that was a tough story, and in fact, helping me understand my younger son, as I, he was 14 at the time, uh, was something that the compassionate friends uh, really helped me with, because he seemed to withdraw from both his mother and me, and uh, didn't want to talk about it. Uh, he started falling behind in school. He'd been doing very well. He was a freshman class president out here. And uh, just beside ourselves. And he was able to talk to his teachers and his coaches who got him back involved in school. And I realized that things were okay when I heard from the, the parents of another uh, child who had died that George had sought out uh, a brother and talked to him about what he'd been going through. So... When I realized that he was reaching out to other kids, uh, that was a good sign. Well, and it's so easy. It's so interesting hearing that uh, he withdrew from you and and his mother because that's exactly what my 14-year-old sister did when my brother died. And she's a girl, so I'm wondering if it's also the way some teenagers deal with it, to withdraw from their parents and seek out. And I always it can be. I mean, there's so many differences. I remember, you know, three years later when he was applying to college, he wrote an essay and he had a line in it, you know, an entrance exam essay, and he had a line in it to the effect that he had a brother who died a long time ago. And, you know, for me, three years ago was just like yesterday. Right. For him, going from, for him going from 14 to 17. It's, it's, so it, that was just one of the ways in which his grief was different from mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those years are big. And and as my friend, who is a pediatrician, said to me when Scott died, Heather will go through the, her um, you know experiences no matter what. You know, they're driven by hormones and a lot of other things going on too. Yeah. I think how's he been with it now? Because uh, that's a, a whole other issue. I think that um, Heidi and Rebecca, who are a little older, have been a little more involved with the experience than Heather has or, or has dealt with it differently. She doesn't want to talk about it or is being, being as involved with it as everyone else is. Have you found that? He's, he's fine now. And, and when I realized that he was okay and, and things were coming along was when he started telling stories about when his older brother was a jerk. Then I realized he was he was going to be okay. And yeah. that's great that he's able to see his brother as a real person. You know, yeah. and not just the positive times, but you know, as siblings we have positive times and we have sibling rivalry and negative times. That's normal. But I think part of it probably Dave is uh, did you um were you aware of not uh, uh glorifying him and making him the angel in the family and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, believe me, my expectations were very low. I, I just my my but, what I was trying to achieve was just to have some kind of connection. No, I, I mean your son that died because yeah. George, yeah, because some of the things that we did, oh, oh I, yeah, that it, you didn't make George out to be some kind of an angel. No, that child that that wasn't the issue. Yeah, because yeah, some of that uh, I think affects people, don't you, Heidi? The well, kids? a lot of the siblings say, you know, we can't compete with the person that died. They're perfect now. It's a perfect memory. So we can't compete, and we can't even see our siblings. We're not allowed to talk about our siblings as real people. It has to be that they were perfect in every aspect. 
Whereas Adam, that's your son's name that's surviving, right? Yes. Uh-huh. He was allowed to talk about George as a real brother, as the way he really was, the good parts of him, the parts where he was a jerk. You know, and that's, that's so yeah. positive, and that's such a healthy way to deal with it. And that's when I realized that things were okay. Yeah. Now, how did you get to Compassionate Friends? Well, it was about six months later. Uh, I hadn't uh, I hadn't heard of the the group, and uh, a, a friend told me about it. And I hadn't even considered, you know, the, the the thought that men and women would grieve differently. And I remember, I think it was the second uh, the second meeting uh, that I'd gone to, and uh, and one of the women. Uh, one of the women at the at the chapter meeting said it was so nice to see me there because men grieve differently than uh, than women. And uh, her remark was, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was meant to put me at ease. I hadn't said a thing so far, and maybe I was even a little intimidating in my silence. I don't know, but I was completely taken aback. And what what I was feeling after George's death was so absolute and so awful. How could it possibly come with any differences? And I remember thinking later, would you grieve differently for a son than for a daughter or for an adolescent or, you know, than, than an infant? I mean, to me, grief had to be absolute for both mothers and fathers. But then over time, I began to see the differences that this well-meaning mother had in mind. And, uh, and I became aware of, you know, of, of, of several of them. And did you go to the Compassionate Friends meeting alone? Or did I, I, I did, yes. That's, I think that's very unusual, don't you, Mom, for a man to go alone to the first Compassionate Friends meeting? Yeah, I, I mean, it's different. You're, you're... It, had, it had been some time, and, and what ha- one, of the, one of the ways I, I, I realized that men are different from, uh, from women is men have this compulsion to, to want to fix things. Uh-huh. And... What I'd done, I, again, I hadn't heard of the Compassionate Friend, so not too long after he died, I went to see two different psychologists, and I went to each one only once. And it wasn't their fault. I mean, I was, it was me. I was looking for tips. I figured sure, surely these professionals had some tricks of the trade they could right. pass on. We want to get rid of that pain, yeah. right? And that would help me get back to the business of life. And when they didn't have tips, and when tips weren't forthcoming, I saw they couldn't fix my grief, you know, then I became impatient, and it was something I'd, you know, work out on my own. Now, do you think it would have been helpful had they had a child die, had either of them had that? Oh, sure, sure, because just listening, you know, I couldn't talk at the first, uh, you know, few meetings I went to, and just listening to the stories, yeah, that would that would have made a huge difference. And they could have said, look, you're in a lot of, we, we know you're in a lot of pain right now, and you're in a bad state, and you want us to fix it, we've been there. Yeah, so he can't, but you will get through this eventually. Yeah, so there I was. I'd, I'd gone to two psychologists that hadn't worked. I hadn't heard of compassionate friends, and I figured I'd just try to sit there, think it through, which is, is a crazy concept. Um, and I, it, I, I want to say that. something. I want to say something about step parents at this point because okay. when I was going through that point alone, I mean, my wife Kathleen had known George, but not well. He'd been living on the mainland when we got together. But much later, she told me that she'd been feeling a lot of isolation mm-hmm. when he died. And then I found out later that this wasn't unusual. You know, when the biological parents come together for the memorial and the, you know, and the events surrounding the death of a child. 
And then, during the, and then during the next couple of years, Kathleen would feel excluded. As she put it, she was shut out. And when I'd withdrawn, would be unable to talk to her. So ultimately, it was her incredible patience and tolerance that uh, served our relationship so well. So I guess this is a shout-out to the step-parents who go through their own special problems of adjusting. And what advice would you give the step-parents just to hang in there and be there and eventually, I mean, what, what would you say? Sure, uh, to understand and listen because it's a, it's a tough role. When do you, you know, she would be concerned about my relationship with Adam. Uh, she would also you know, put flowers by George's photo. But, but I would say to just understand how difficult it is and, 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 and just listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um, think it sounds like we should have Kathleen on the show sometime. <laughs> that would be good because we have Dave Muro, who is a stepfather, talking yeah. about a lot of these issues and exactly what you're saying, Dave. I feel shut out. I want to do something, but I'm not sure what to do because mm-hmm. I feel like the outsider here. And, yeah, it was so helpful to so many people out there that are step-parents grappling with these issues. And Kathleen is such an amazing support. I mean, I see her at the Compassionate Friends functions. I mean, she's there by your side supporting you, and it's it's wonderful to see that. Yeah, it's just been a tremendous support. I, I couldn't say it enough. Yeah, um, I, I always wonder about that, about two people, you know, my husband and I grieving together for Scott, and then I, I'm thinking if you had a step-parent, would be some more supportive or, you know, how would, would it be? Because I think that, even as biological parents, there you just—it's it's really quite a time because when you're up there down and you know the whole uh, the whole thing's going on and you're mad at them because you want to feel good today and the next day they're mad at you because they want to feel good and <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. I think an amazing gift is step uh, like uh, another you know step parent could give you was like if they went if they didn't know the child they could go to you and say I didn't know you know George but I want to get to know him. Tell me all about him and tell me what he was like. Because I so wanted to talk about what my brother was like and who he was. Mm-hmm. That was so important to me rather than just how he died. Yeah, yeah. So that's a great point. Well, and I'd mentioned, you know, this tendency to, for men to want to fix things. Mm-hmm. And at least in my case, because his mother and I had, had already split up, she was spared my inept attempts to try to fix her grief. But I think that's probably in a lot of ways where men were fathers and husbands themselves in trouble when they try to fix their their partner's grief. I know. Sometimes I'll be at uh, Compassionate Friends or somewhere giving a presentation and you'll see this woman crying and the poor husband is sitting there with a blank, kind of a blank look with his arm around her and you can just see his mind saying, well, what can I do? When, when in fact he's had the same loss. What can I do to help her? Yeah. Now, sometimes I think this tendency to want to fix things can be positive. I remember I said that when I went to the hospital, I was met by the chaplain and mm-hmm. who took me in to see the doctor who told me that George had died on the scene. And then it wasn't until much later that I realized that all that time I'd been, you know, with George and I kissed him and tried to hold him. And the doctor had stood by and Ian said basically nothing. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, you know, none of that even registered for months afterwards. But later I did I did start to wonder, you know, how it would have felt if the doctor had said something like, I'm sorry, or touched me on the arm or shoulder, or said George's name. And as trivial as all this seemed, I'm pretty sure that it would have helped. So I thought, you know, I'll write a letter to the UH Medical School and fix this. <laughs> <laughs> 
because I, I thought it, I thought it was nice that hospitals have chaplains standing by to offer comfort, but I also thought that empathy and caring and compassion are not things that doctors should think they can delegate, whether it's to chaplains or nurses or anyone else. Absolutely. So I wrote a letter and I got a nice but vague reply back, and uh, maybe it made a slight tiny difference maybe it made no, no difference but it made me feel better right. thinking that i might be fixing something fixing some kind of action yeah well you know at least we've moved on to the point where you're able to be there with the body and they're not trying to move you out I mean, well that, that is yeah that was important to me yeah absolutely well tell us it just um for our audience out there if we've got a wife out there um or a husband who wants to go to compassionate friends how do you, can you get your husband there if he doesn't want to go? And, and talk about guys going alone. Give him some encouragement to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I would say most women, most mothers will go by themselves the first time and then maybe have their, their husbands join them at a subsequent meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've I've seen it both ways. I remember when our, our current chapter leader went, and uh, uh, and her husband came with her to the first meeting, and he just could not talk. So it is different, and I th- and I think the main thing is, uh, I think a a mother can explain to her husband how the meeting felt if it helped her to just sort of say that, but not put pressure on, because it can be different. When I first got involved, the chapter leaders. Husband was very supportive of everything she was doing, and he would show up for every chapter meeting um, 20 minutes early to make coffee and put out some donuts, but would leave before the meeting started. He was just too painful for him. Uh-huh. So there just has to be a patience and an understanding and to not try to force the issue. Now, what about men talking about it? Do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, do they need to talk about it or... Or do they talk less, or what's your take on that? Well, I think that was one of the first differences I I, I noticed uh, when the, you know when the one woman had made the remark to me about men grieving differently, and I I came to see that first neither I nor the other men who occasionally attended the chapter meetings talked much, and the women talked freely, and sometimes it seemed endlessly, <laughs> but but it was also. Sitting there listening, I found it strangely soothing to listen uh, to these mothers endlessly repeat the same stories, and they mm-hmm. developed their own rhythm, and uh, and there became this unvoiced, immediate understanding that uh, that prevails. And a place where you really didn't have to fix anything, you didn't have to do anything. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually, you started reaching out and doing a few things in your chapter, or how did that? Yeah, happen? and I think I think that's where you can define, well, when do things start getting better? And once you start doing something out of yourself to help others, I think that's when the healing started. And for me, I, as I became more involved in the chapter, I started doing a, a newsletter. And, and, and that's really, I think, when things started feeling better for me. Uh-huh. So the writing I think it, it doesn't matter. Therapeutic? The what? The newsletter, doing the writing, was that therapeutic? It was therapeutic in getting to know the other children and their parents who would submit things on their on their children. Uh, it, it literally started to become a feeling of family. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Dave, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, first of all, I want to make sure we get this in about TCF Foundation, the Compassionate Friends Foundation, because I think it's just a wonderful thing you're heading it, and uh, this is the first time uh, we've tried to get an endowment, right? That's that's true. We set this up just a few years ago, the foundation. There had been zero financial resources and uh you know we're now close to having a 2 million dollar endowment fund wow. and, and and hope to exceed that uh, uh amount by uh by the time of our summer conference in Oklahoma City in July mm-hmm. in July so that so that there can be uh funding from the endowment fund from the earnings of the endowment fund to help support the organization so it's less hand to mouth because right now there are over 500 chapters and they're serving bereaved parents and there's room for hundreds more uh to be in service and that takes money for the training uh and and, and setting up new programs right. in and smaller communities yeah. so Wonderful chapter leader training. And let me say one thing about Compassionate Friends. I have uh, only been involved with Compassionate Friends intensely, I'd say, for a few years. And one of the things that's so impressive, how many paid employees are there, Dave? Uh, I think there's fewer than half a dozen now. Uh, It's just an amazing thing for an organization like this. It's just almost unheard of. So I always feel like any dollar I give to Compassionate Friends really counts and goes towards helping bereaved parents. It's it's deeply appreciated, and uh, we we really rely on people who have been touched personally, uh, either with the loss of their own child or friends uh, of some of bereaved parents. And let me say that uh, there's a matching grant going on right now, and uh, if you put in a dollar, it's going to be two, right, Dave? That's up up until July, and uh, the normally the, the the minimum donation of the foundation would be five thousand dollars to separate it from the annual donations for operating funds that we receive from our chapter base, and many of those donations are in the range of forty dollars to a hundred dollars. So to build the endowment fund, we, we, we set it as a very separate kind of giving, and for some people it's really a once-in-a-lifetime gift. But during the time of this matching grant to match a contribution from anonymous donors, uh, people can pledge $2,500 over a three-year period. So it's a real opportunity. It's a wonderful opportunity. If you're interested in taking advantage of this opportunity, go to the Compassionate Friends website. Yes. And uh, you can go on from there. Well, Dave, um, talking about men in grief, Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you something. You live in Hawaii. Are there any differences the way the Hawaiians deal with loss? Well, we have, for in our chapter, we will have uh, uh, our membership will include Caucasians or Haoles, as they're, they're called out here, uh, Japanese, Chinese, so which we have Buddhists, uh, uh, Native Hawaiians, Polynesians, a great mix, uh, probably a bigger mix, both both ethnically and, and religious-wise, than you'd see in, in chapters on the mainland. Uh, and there are some differences, and in 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 in. Uh, for in Japanese culture, for example, if some parents who have had a child die of AIDS, it's, it's even more of a, a, a tough thing, uh, a stigma mm, in the community. Uh, in, in the community, and 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 it takes 
extra effort for 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 them to come to uh, <clears throat> to a meeting and talk about it because there is a there is a reserved part of of, of that culture that comes into play. Yeah, I remember in Carmel there was a, a boy that died surfing, and he was a big part of the surf community. There were two boys that died, and they were a big part of the surf community, and they had. They were Hawaiian. One of them was Hawaiian, and they had a big, like, kind of a luau, Dave, on the beach. And then afterwards, they all got on in these big boats mm-hmm. and went out, paddled out into the surf with their boards and their boats, and like had a ritual out there. I don't know what they were doing, but it was really they wonderful. made a surf. Oh, it's bad. I mean, uh, George George loved to surf, mm-hmm. and uh, after school there was there was a ledge that I would I would sit on. I'd, I'd leave work early some days and and just watch him and his friends surfing down below and it was just beautiful you know the late afternoon sun would be hitting the Koala mountains in the background and they're having a great time and i remember uh i think one of his teachers suggested once that maybe he should spend a little less time surfing and <laughs> more time studying but i remember thinking to myself well there sure are worse ways to spend your time <laughs> And when when he died, a group of his friends who who surfed uh, came in, and and uh, we we took out a boat to scatter his ashes where he did his favorite surfing spot, and a lot of his friends paddled out on their surfboards and uh, and helped uh, spread his ashes in the in the ocean. Um, so it was, it was a very touching. That's day. A, that's such a great ritual and so appropriate because that's where he would have wanted mm-hmm. to be. And then every one of my little rituals is that every, maybe it's my only one basically, but once a year, uh, it used to be on the anniversary of his death, but now I do it on his birthday. I'll go back to that uh, ledge, that cliff ledge, and uh, take with him uh, folders of term papers and essays and things he wrote and college and notes from people and just uh, in a folding chair and sit on that ledge and, and read through these things. And it just brings it back to me. Ah, what a great ritual. That's uh, a wonderful thing to do. It really is a wonderful way to, to uh, deal with it. Yeah, and it comes back fresh, especially as I become older. I remember my father telling me in his late age that one of the advantages of getting old for him was that he could now watch reruns of Murder, She Wrote, and they seemed like new programs. <laughs> so I will now, as I open these folders of George's papers and things, I say, oh, yes, I'd forgotten about that. This is great. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think, I know that George died on a motorcycle. I was wondering how that impacted um, your thoughts about Adam riding motorcycles, and were you more overprotective of Adam after George died? Well, I think he never, you know, as I say, he might that might have been the first time he ever got on a motorcycle and uh and and Adam never expressed uh expressed a desire to get on one. Okay. Uh but in terms of being protective, I think that one of the things about being a parent, any parent, is that it, by nature it's conservative, it's protective and risk aversive. So our struggle as parents is to let our hopes for our children outweigh our fears. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and, I like that. and, and, and that's true. That's true in the happiest and most fortunate of families. So I think you can multiply that many times for parents who have already had a child die. Mm-hmm. And with Adam, I would worry about even a minor injury. And, and a late-night phone call, I mean, that, that could bring on panic. So struggling, and I, and I know that it bugged him at times. When he when he felt I was being too protective, or 
you know, wanting too, <laughs> wanting too much information. So, and how did and you I feel did. when he left for college? You went to Stanford, is that right? He did, and he went. Uh, you know, he was he went at the age that his older brother died, and uh, first of all, I was tremendously proud because mm-hmm. he'd. Uh, he was named as his senior year of high school. It was football that got him back studying again because his coach and his class dean had told him that, Adam, if you don't get your act together, you won't be able to play football. Uh-huh. And his coach later told me that he just broke out in these long, convulsive sobs. Uh-huh. It was cathartic. He, Adam never told me about this, but the coach did. And just got all of this out of his system, but basically then started studying again. And his his last year of... His last year of uh, high school, he was named the top scholar athlete in the state of Hawaii by Starcom Sports Radio, and uh, then he wow. got a full football scholarship to Stanford. So, believe me, I have a soft spot in my heart for football. I was going to say, and there's nothing like a good coach, is there? Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm thinking, Mom. I'm thinking the community around Adam was so amazing, and it's, it speaks how important that is because when you lose a sibling, you've got grieving parents, and they can't always be there. But the communities there, his coaches were there, his teachers were there, his school was there for him, which is so unbelievable. I know, I, and I and I was so, uh, and I was so grateful for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he had gone through so much. He first of all, he was at the age of thirteen, he was hit by the breakup of his parents' marriage, and then at fourteen, by the death of his brother, and mm-hmm. and that can cause pain and anger that I couldn't. You know, I couldn't begin to understand. So the fact that he had teachers and coaches that he could open up to, even if it was in a way that he couldn't with me for a long time, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just, I was just deeply grateful. That's great. He went to Punahou. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's a recent, there, you know, there's a political candidate out there who also went to Punahou. That's <laughs> right, Obama, right? <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> He's in good company. My my uh, cousin uh, went to Punahou, and he also graduated from Stanford. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, if you had some advice for folks out there, uh, what would you have to tell them? For bereaved parents, or for or for friends or family? What for any anyone you want to talk about? How about bereaved parents to start with, and when we come back from break, we'll talk about advice that you give to other folks. One thing I would advise is, is is to understand how powerful an emotion grief is. And any emotion, I think, is easier to deal with than grief. When, uh, George's mother and I had, had, had reached an amicable, amicable divorce settlement, and uh, everything changed after George died. Uh, and it became litigious and very difficult. And it wasn't until much later that we both realized that anger is, is, is a much easier emotion to deal with than grief. It was easier to be angry. Yeah. And, and it would have helped me. Uh, I, uh, I'd, I'd mentioned some of the differences that I came to, came to discover on my own, the first one being that that the mothers in the Compassionate Friends group I went to were much more verbal uh, than the men were. Uh, another difference I came to recognize is that I, I came to feel that I was better than the mothers at compartmentalizing my grief. 
I was better I was better at keeping a lid on it socially and at work. I remember I went back to work uh, less than a week after George died, after the memorial service, uh, and a week after that I <clears throat> went to our company Christmas party and by all accounts had a maniacally good time and was able to sort of deal with things at work and just shut off the grief. It wasn't until I got into the privacy of my own car or home mm-hmm. that I, I could let things that I could let things go. Uh, I, I was lucky. I had an office door I could shut, and I was feeling how much harder it must be for people who'd suffered a loss like that to to, to go through their grieving and private thoughts in full view of others. Uh, it, it has to make it much uh, much more difficult. Mm-hmm. However, some people feel that the compartmentalizing for men can also cut them off a bit from their feelings. But it sounds like you were able to bring yours bring yours out at different times. Well, you've got a letter that you can that you want to read from that for us. Well, that, shortly after. Uh, Uh, I'm just looking for the letter there. <laughs> yeah, looking for it here. With it, with it. Shortly after I, I took over being editor of our newsletter, uh, this was this was between two and three years after George died. I sent a copy to a friend in California uh, and his wife Jack and Linda, and they'd been involved in the Compassionate Friends there after the death of their daughter Hollis. And uh, he wrote back and said it was good to see a man taking an active role in the group. And then he went on to write movingly about these male-female grieving differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the rest of his letter, it, it touched me deeply. And uh, let me just read part of it. He wrote, <clears throat> quote, Several years after Hollis died, Linda and I were being trained by compassionate friends to be buddies for newly bereaved parents. One of the exercises was to list all the unhelpful things that others had said in trying to comfort comfort us so we wouldn't make the same mistakes. The other trainees, all women, made long lists and did it with enthusiasm. When the lists were read aloud, they nodded knowingly at every entry and eventually hooted and howled with derision at the worst, and some of them were pretty bad. When it came my turn, I held up an empty page and said, People may have said such things to me, I just don't recall. What I do remember is that people tried to tell me how sad they were for us. I remember being told how much they loved Hollis and how much they cared about us. I remember one of my partners hugging me in the hall of my very stiff and proper law firm. I remember men who had never told me anything more personal than their reactions to the giant's loss, crying at our loss and our fears. You women are used to talking to each other about your emotions and about personal things. I wasn't, and my friends weren't either. So the fact that we could do so was a great gift, and it wasn't marred in the slightest by someone's choice of words. Now the shell has been broken, and I find it easier to talk about my emotions, my hopes and fears, about those things that are really important. And that, for me, was one of Hollis's greatest gifts. I know that even after George's death, he is a major part of your life. My guess is that you're becoming more open to the gifts that he and those who care about you are able to give. You know, Dave, you're, we're going yours to with compassion and friendship, okay. Jack. Oh, thank you. I was thought we were going to cut off at the end. That is beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Dave. 
You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.